We're getting a little late start, so I will be conscious of the time. <laughs> um, so 12 years ago, uh, most I think a lot of people in here were not here, or uh, it's been 12 years, so we slept a couple of times since then. I actually done this sermon back then. However, I did a sermon that covered all seven churches, and there's only so much you can put in a sermon when you're trying to cover that much material. So what I am doing right now for the next, basically the next year, I'm doing a series where I'm covering every church by themselves. Because if you really read those letters, there is actually a spiritual message in every letter. And there's, uh, uh, there's, a, um, there's a lot more uh, going on than just the letter to the church at that time. Uh, the letter was written by John on Patmos. And the last sermon I did on May the 8th was about John. And it was the message behind that. Uh, I believe that was Revelation 1. Uh, but it's basically that God can use anyone, no matter how young or how old they are. And that this was in John's twilight years, and and he gave us revelation. And so God can use anyone. And so that's what that sermon was about. So if you want to watch that as a precursor to this series, it was, it's on our YouTube channel on May the 8th. So if you go there, you can just go and watch that. Um, I want to go a little deeper into each church, and that's why we're doing a series. So I'm going to, every, every uh, sermon, I'm going to quickly recap the old sermon. So like the next sermon is on August the 6th, I believe. So but basically a couple weeks from now. And so uh, let's get started here. There, the significance of the letters was that they were actual churches in John's time, but they also represented different kinds of churches, um, and they also represented different churches throughout history. So there's time periods that these um, these letters were covering as God was delivering a message that we, at the end, at the end of time, we can go back and learn a lot from. Uh, the seven churches... Were if, if you're wondering what part of the world uh, that the seven churches were in, it's in the Medi- if you know where the Mediterranean Sea is over, like it's in that part of the world. Um, think about Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Israel, and Turkey. And Turkey is actually the country that the seven churches were located right beside the Mediterranean Sea. And Patmos is an island outside of Turkey. Okay. All right. And Ephesus was known for its huge metropolis of ancient streets, arches, and ruins, including a large gymnasium, a library, and 24,000 person amphitheater. So if you get on Google, you can just type in Ephesus and you can see a lot of pictures about the city as it is in its ruins today. But a lot of people go visit that every year. Uh, the city of Ephesus was home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, Artemis was later called Diana by the Romans, who was the goddess of fertility that supposedly controlled the reproduction of humans, animals, and crops. Um, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus was known throughout the ancient world for its temple, prostitutes, and hedonistic celebrations. So this is I'm just trying to give you an idea of the city that, that this church was centered in that he was writing to. All right. Uh, the church of Ephesus was of John's time. Um, it means populated city. Um, 
This is from Jesus' resurrection until the time uh, around the death of the last apostles. This is from like uh, 31 to 100 A.D. Um, they watched carefully um, to keep the false hearted from doing harm to the church. They were eager to spread the truth about Jesus into all the nations of the earth. So this is the very beginnings of the Christian church, the very beginnings of that. And um, when we do the last sermon, I'm going to recap each message that each of the churches had because each one of them had a message. And today's message is going to be about the first love. That's what this message is about. So I'm going to quickly read Revelations uh, 2 verses 1 through 7. Um, and then we're going to break, break it down uh, verse by verse a little bit to get a better understanding of what's happening at that time and, and, and the message behind it. So it says, Unto the church of, church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden sticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come quickly unto thee, I'll come, come unto thee quickly, and, and will remove the candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this ha- thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hateth hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Sorry. Unto the churches, to him that overcometh, I will eat. I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, so let's start with the first part here. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write: These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walked, walketh in the midst of the seven golden uh, golden candlesticks. Revelations two one. Ephesus is the first and was the church of John's time. Its time was from Jesus' resurrection to around the death of the last apostles. This early church was pure and eager to spread the truth about Jesus to the entire world. They watched carefully so that those who were false-hearted and meant to sneak in and do the church harm were sent away, and the true believers were carefully taught. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted revelations 2 and 3 so God uses the golden candlestick to represent the union between himself and his church to have God's golden, uh, candle, golden candlestick in your midst is to be his true people and here God warns them to return to him or have it removed The early apostolic uh, church carried the gospel to all of them, all the then known world before the last of the apostles died. They suffered persecution and many died for their faith. Their eagerness to obey Jesus' command and to teach all nations carried them to the ends of the earth. So this was, like I said, this is up until the last of the apostles. This is the very beginning of the church. And they were commissioned by Christ to spread the gospel to the world. And that's what they were doing. So now you got to think about this is the time period where now the church has got to continue the work without the apostles. And what was happening, which we're going to read here, is that people were starting to come into the church and to bring 
their opinions about how they thought things should run and how things should be. And, you know, when you when you involve a large group of people, you always have people who are going to come in and try to do that. And what he's saying here um, is that they were guarded against that, but they were not a perfect church. Okay. It says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, when thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove the candlestick out of his place, except I repent. Revelations two verses four and five. We see that already there was a problem in this church. Jesus said they had left their first love. By John's day, there had come into the church those who wanted to rule and tell all others what to do. Paul said the mystery of iniquity was already at work in his day. They start. They starting to look. They started to look to men and not as much to Jesus and His Word. And as they had been uh, been at first, Jesus warned them to go back to their first love, or He would remove their candlestick, and they would cease to be His people. And then in Revelation two six says, "But thou hast and that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." So there is a group of people called the Nicolaitans, and this is this is what they were doing. The Nicolaitans were follow, uh, followers of a teacher called Nicholas, who began, among other things, to teach that the death of Christ on Calvary had done away with God's Ten Commandment law, and it was now no longer necessary to keep the law of God. Does that sound familiar? This doctrine is also taught in our day. Some claim that the gospel of Christ was made the law of God of no made the law of God no effect; that by believing we are released from the necessity of being doers of the word. This is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Christ so unsparingly condemned. Some historians say that the teachings of this group also brought in the idea that the clergy or ministers who were separate from the laity or people who should rule over them. Of course, that idea was as old as paganism because paganism also taught that, taught that idea and used it to oppress and rob the common people. Jesus says clearly, we are all brethren, no kingly power to be found among his people. And the promise is, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Revelation 2.7 In this promise to the faithful, Jesus takes the minds of his people forward to Eden restored at last. That, that, that's going on today. There's a lot of people who believe, as long as I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm good. That's it. I'm good. But that is that is the teachings of Nicholas, the Nicolaitans believe, and that's not and that just what it was was not the case. So basically, uh, Jesus warns them to return to him or cease to be his people. Um, his teachings his teachings suggested that it was no longer necessary to keep the law. Okay, so basically, I'm trying to hurry up and get through this. But basically, if you love God, you will keep His word and be doers of His works if He is in your heart. And if he's not, you're not. You're, you're going to find a reason not to do it if he's not in your heart, no matter what you believe. Okay, so now let's talk about the first love. And this is the message behind this, um, this letter. He talks about they had lost their first love. So I want everybody here to think t- to yourself, have you lost your first love? Do you even know what the first love is? Now, for like I've, I've said before, I was born in this church. I was not a person that was lost in the world and someone shared the gospel to me and then I found Christ and I had this read this whole experience. Like I was born in the church. I was raised right here in these pews. Right. I've been, my mother had, and father shared the message with me since I was a baby. 
So I don't have the same experience that someone else may have. But I also have a first love. It just began when I was a baby. <laughs> right. But especially if you were not born into the church, when you first experienced God's love and really understood who he was, you had an experience. You, he had a first love. You were baptized. Um, you were brought into the church and, and there was a, a passion and, a, and an energy about it. Right. And you have to think to yourself, after all these years, have you lost that first love? And, and if you have, what do you do to get it back? And that's what we're going to do now. So what are the signs of leaving <clears throat> my first love for God? Every Christian should be aware of the danger of leaving his love, first love for the Lord. Long ago, the church of Ephesus was busy doing many things for God. Yet Jesus said, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love in Revelations 2.4. The Lord commanded them, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place. Except thou repent. Revelations 2, 5. Several things can indicate that you are wanting from your first love. So we're going to go. Uh, I think there's 12 of these. And the first one may be you delight in someone else, someone else more than you delight in the Lord. And for people who are in love, <laughs> if you have a spouse or if you have a girlfriend or boyfriend, do you love them more than the Lord? Should you have any relationship that's deeper and more meaningful than your relationship with Jesus Christ? Okay, so uh, your love for God should be foremost in your heart, exceeding the bond of any other relationship. Jesus identified the greatest of all commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Number two, your soul does not long for times of rich fellowship in God's word of prayer. This is a very easy one in today's time. Our time is demanded by everybody and everything, especially if you are online or if you're dealing with technology or entertainment. Or if you have a job, a career, or business, your time is in demand. But if your soul does not long for times of fellowship with God, that could be a sign. We should be looking for every opportunity to spend time with God. Your relationship with God deepens as you spend time in his word and commune with him in prayer. If you forsake this fellowship and your understanding of his true condition before God will grow dull. As God's children, his friends and his bride, um, it is critical that we draw near to him to engage in our relationship with him. Number three, your thoughts and leisure moments do not honor the Lord. The things... Uh, in Mark 12, 30, it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy, and one of them is mind. I just read it a minute ago. The things that captivate your thoughts in leisure moments reveal much about the priorities of your heart. The Apostle Paul instructed us, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things in Philippians 4, 8. And this is something we were talking about in my class today. What you behold is what you become. So if you're not beholding Christ, if you're not studying, if you're not spending that time with him, how can you become like him if you're not doing those things? And then the flip of that, 
if you're spending all your time doing the worldly stuff and entertainment and everything else, what are you going to become like? So we should guard our thoughts and leisure moments. Four, you make excuses for doing things that displease the Lord, claiming to be only human. Has anybody ever done that? We make a lot of excuses for ourselves, right? All right. Another part of that, that verse, it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy strength, in Mark twelve thirty, God wants you to dedicate your life to him as a living sacrifice, discerning his will in all things and walking in obedience to him. As your good shepherd, he will lead you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, Psalms 12, 23, 3. There is no excuse for disobeying the Lord. None. His grace is sufficient to rescue you from every temptation. See 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The truth is, every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. James chapter 1, 14 through 16. Your obedience to God demonstrates your love for him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. John 15, verse 10. A fifth one. You do not willfully and cheerfully give to God's work or to the needs of others. Generosity is part of God's holy character. For God so loved the world that he gave, and we all know the rest of that verse, his only son. John 3.16 And he loveth a cheerful giver in 2 Corinthians 9.7 Therefore, whosoever hath this girl's good and seeth his brother have need and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? 1 John 3.17 This is something that we talk about in my own family. Is it wrong to be rich? No. If God blesses you with wealth, He's doing it because he wants you to use that wealth for his service. And he trusts you to do so. That is why he is entrusting you with that wealth. If you make, if you make a, a wealth for yourself and you hoard it, that is a, a mirror image of what's going on in your own heart. He gave his son for you to live and you cannot give to help his people. We are to do good works. And the, the, the willingness for you to give to others is a reflection of your own heart and how you actually feel. So I know there's a lot of sermons and a lot of people have beliefs about people. Uh, the church keep asking for money, but there's a lot of need. And we should give what we can give because God has blessed us first. We just did the offering and we pray and thank God for all the blessings he do for us. But he's not just doing that for our own comfort. He's entrusting us with goods so that we can bless others. There have been many examples I know with my family where a person came to us because God sent them to us and it was evident. Like it was very easy for them to go to another house or another another part of the, the, the community, but they came to us asking for help. And what would it look like if we would have turned them away? Selfishness. That's what that's about. So are you willingly and cheerfully giving to God's work? Six, you cease to treat others as you would love you would treat the Lord. 
Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. John 13, 34. Love one another is not a suggestion. It is a command that we are enabled to fulfill the work by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Do you find that we are quick to judge and condemn others? Consider God's love for you and his command that you love others with his love. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the appropriation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. First John 4 verses 10 and 11. It doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter how much good you do. If you don't love people, you're in trouble. A lot of people give out of obligation, but we are to give out of love. A lot of people do good works out of obligation, but we are to do good works out of love. Everything comes back down to your heart. And so when we're trying to measure ourselves and find out where we are in our walk, it's about your heart and your intentions and why you're doing things. Not what you're doing, but why. Seven, you view Christ's commands as restrictions to your happiness rather than expressions of his love. God's commandments, uh, the words of your wise and caring father lead you toward what is good and away from what is evil. He that has my commandments and keepeth them, he that is he it is that loveth me and he that loveth me shall love be loved by my of my father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. John 14 verse 21. Obedience to his commandments brings forth, brings true freedom and joy. As kids, we grew up like, and I'm talking to my youth here, especially me when I was a youth. We want to do things like we were kids. We want to go out and have fun. But the Sabbath keeps coming around and spoiling it, right? We want to go to those parties and we want to go play sports and we want to go do all these things. But the Sabbath keeps coming around, right? And that's when they want to do everything on the weekends. God said that we are like following his commands is not a punishment. It's a blessing. Because as once you become an adult and you realize, oh, all I do is work. (laughs) The Sabbath all all of a sudden starts to look real nice, (laughs) Right. Just going home and relaxing and enjoying God's love, that's a blessing. I'm just using an example. Like, we should not look at God's commandments as restrictions. He's actually freeing us. He's showing us the path for happiness and freedom. And that is what this is about. It's not about restricting and and causing you not to be able to go out and and enjoy sin. Because guess what? We're not supposed to enjoy sin. And we had, a, we had another conversation today about sitting by proxy, but we won't go into that. Okay. Hey, you strive for affirmation from the world rather than approval from the Lord. And this is a, this is a very important one. Jesus faced misunderstandings and rejection because of his obedience to God. And you will face similar situations. If ye were of the world, the world will love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John fifteen nineteen. First um, John chapter two, verse fifteen through seventeen. Love not the world, neither the things that are in, are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. And he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
You want to know why this is so important? We have, we call it cancer culture. Um, we have public pressure that we put on people. Um, we now have synonyms and, uh, well, you know what I'm talking about, right? I don't have to go into details. It is becoming unpopular just to say simple truth. Man, woman. Now there's a whole dictionary of what you can be if you want to be it, right? That's not going to stop. That's going to continue, right? So there's going to come a point where you're going to be asked to speak the truth, and you're going to have to make a decision, including me. Are you just going to say the truth, or are you going to try to bend the truth to appease the world? If you want to appease the world, what you're actually saying is, I want to be of the world. At some point, we're all going to have to make a decision that we're going to stand by truth and we're going to stand by God, no matter how unpopular it is and no matter what the consequences are. And that's where that's going to come into effect. Nine, you fail to make Christ or his words known because you fear rejection. If your faithfulness to God depends on the reaction of those around you, you are serving men instead of serving God. See Galatians 1 verse 10. Jesus' obedience to, God's, uh, obedience to God aggravated many people, including the religious leaders of his community. Remember that the word that I said unto you, the word I said unto you, though servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. John 15 verse 20. Be faithful to proclaim the truth in love, because God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, which is just a continuation of that other part. It's coming. Well, we're going to have to stand tall and stand strong and suffer the consequences. It's just what it is. If it happened to Christ, he's saying it will happen to you. Ten, you refuse to give up an activity that you know is offending a weaker brother. We talked about today that today in class as well. In every generation, Christians seek God's will concerning discretionary activities. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Romans 14, verses 12 through 15. In other words, all of us are in a different part of our walk with Christ. You have people who are basically babies in Christ. And you have others who are more really experienced, have been in Christ, in the, in the church, and in his word, and they're, they're way farther advanced. What he's saying is, do not hurt your brother that is of a baby because you're trying to put what you have, the expectations of yourself onto them. Go to them where they're at and help them to grow. But don't put unnecessary burdens and restrictions on them that cause them to leave the faith because many people have left. And, for, and here's a good example, food. There's so many people who have left the Seventh-day Adventist Church because we try to impose our food beliefs on them. As right as they may be, they were not ready for that at that time. I know someone right now that just left. 
because they were they were trying to get them to give up all their foods too quickly. And they just said, I can't handle this. I'm done. They walked away. That's not the only example. It's just one. We need to be more conscious about people where they're at. What they were to church, what they do at church. Everybody's not in the same place. We have to find the love and compassion and say, I know where you're at. Let me help assist you and not burden you. That's what they're talking about here. You become complacent towards sinful conditions around you. Jesus warned that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Matthew 24, 12. Witnessing the sinfulness of the world around you should motivate you to follow after God with even greater determination. Be sober. Uh, which means be discreet, be vigilant because of your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking who he may devour, who resists steadfast in the faith. First Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. We should not make the, what the world is doing around us the excuse for doing it to. We should see what's happening around us and say, not only am I not going to do that, but I'm going to double down in my faith. I'm going to serve the Lord. I am going to make sure I am diligent in that. And I'm not going to let this world influence me because that's what it's doing. And 12, you are unwilling to forgive your offenders. And I think that applies to all of us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. First John 4.20. Holding a grudge against another person indicates that you have lost sight of the greatness of God's forgiveness of your sin. And your need for his grace. See Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And here's the key word in this. Bitterness is the natural fruit of unforgiveness. Who's bitter? Is anybody bitter? Don't have to answer that. Is there anybody or anything that you're bitter towards? If you're holding on to bitterness, it means you haven't forgiven. Not truly. As believers, we are to follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15. A spirit of forgiveness is essential to the Christian. Jesus said, if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Mark 11, verse 26. I'm debating if I should. I'll hold it. But basically, when you're holding on to bitterness, you're holding on to to basically you're holding on to the sin that has been done unto you, whatever manner or whatever it was. You're holding on to that and you got to let it go and you got to forgive, because if you can't forgive, how can you love? Think about your family. Your family has probably done more to you than anybody else in the world. But because you love them, you keep forgiving them, right? Or is it because you forgive them, you keep loving them? Either way. So other people that are in your family, people who do wrong unto us, if we can't find a way to forgive and we hang on to that bitterness, it will mold, it will shape you, and you will fall. Even Jesus Christ wasn't bitter. If anybody had an excuse to be bitter, it was God. He was not bitter. Okay, so how do we return to your first love for the Lord? 
A prayer of ancient Israel's leader, Moses, gives us insight into the goal of keeping our first love. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight. Exodus 33, verse 13. The longing of our hearts should be to know God and to know him intimately. That is the reason for knowing his ways and his will to know him. And this is God's promise to his children. Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found in you. Jeremiah 29, 13. If you love, if your love for God has grown cold, take steps to renew your relationship with him. Return to your first love. He awaits for you with open arms. And it's very important that if you have lost your first love to return to him, because in the next sermon, we're going to talk about the church of Smyrna and why it was so important. And it was critical that they had returned to their first love, which they did. Many of them did. And what it got them through. Okay. So how can I return to my first love for the Lord? Let's see. Um, okay. Remember, repent, and do the first works. The first works. Recalling your salvation experience and your first love for the Lord can help you recognize changes that have developed in your relationship with God since then. Do you have a greater or weaker sense of your need for God now, or are you cooler toward God and less passionate about spiritual things than you once were? If so, Repent of your indifference toward God. Repentance involves a change of mind, heart, and direction. Forsake the thoughts, attitudes, and actions that have drawn your attention away from, uh, from wholeheartedly love for God. Receive God's forgiveness and renew your commitment to do the first works of your faith. Indifference is what basically what they're talking about. Do you know why God allows us to go through trials and tribulations? It's because we become indifferent. And it's only through trial and tribulation do we become aware of our need for him. Trial and tribulation is there to bring you back and to make your faith stronger. If we didn't, if we didn't need that, he would not have us go through trial and tribulation. But as human beings, that is our nature. That's what we do. We become indifferent. So he's, what we're saying here is you need to be actively trying to find ways to stop being indifferent towards God. Understanding the purpose of doing the first works. I'll tell you what. For time purposes, I'm going to skip this one. Here are some of the things. Worship. One of the ways that we bring God um, glory to God and cultivate our love for him is by worshiping him. Take time to ponder God. Consider his acts in creation and in the circumstances of your life. Adore him. Sing praises to him. Bless his holy name. One thing I have desired of the Lord that, I, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to worship and behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire of in His temple. So the first thing is worship. Are you worshiping not only at church but at home? Are you worshiping in the car? Are you worshiping when you're out amongst other people? Are you worshiping at, at work? Praying with people. All these things are forms of worship, right? If we're actively worshiping God, it's hard to be indifferent. Prayer. Each aspect of prayer is designed to remind you of your dependence on God. There are petitions which bring to mind the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs that you face each day. Your resources cannot meet those needs. You need God's intervention. There's requests. Reveal your motives. Are you seeking to advance God's kingdom or are you attempting to build your own kingdom? 
Confession, recognizing your unworthiness before a holy God and his immeasurable mercy for, for, and love for you, his child. Thanksgiving reflects on an understanding of your dependence on God as you thank him for uh, meeting specific needs and intercession, which is the means by which you share the needs of others before God's throne. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall be kept, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. One of the most powerful things we can do. To, to keep our first love is through prayer. And there are different kinds as we, we've gotten in here. And for all the prayer warriors, we need you. Amen. But all of us should be prayer warriors. Um, I know a lot, there's a lot of people in this church, like my mom has a whole prayer room where she's praying for people. Like prayer is so important in these last days. And going out and praying with other people is so important. That is a way to keep our first love. God's word, study, memorization, and meditation. Do you know in the old days the Jews could recite the Old Testament? <laughs> we can barely read it sometimes. <laughs> I know when I get in Israel, like was it Isaiah, I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> but they could recite it. They knew the word. Okay? Reading, studying, memorization, and medita- meditating on Scripture causes you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. As newborn babes, you are to desire the sincere, the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. First Peter two two. The awareness of your need for God will fuel will fuel your desire for His Word. Giving. We've talked about that. Jesus instructed His disciples, "Freely ye have received, freely give." Matthew ten eight. Generosity offsets the compulsion to be rich and increase with goods, Revelation 3.17. A state of life that can cool your love for God. Giving a tithe, 10% of your income or more, is not simply a way of financially supporting the church. It is a regular reminder that you have that you have belonged to God. See 1 Timothy 6.17 and 19. Remember, this is something I always say. When we're, like when we're giving our tenth back to the Lord, does God need your money? He owns everything. We don't need your money. Can God do his work without our tithe? Can he make things happen? So why do we give tithe? It's for you. It's giving. That's why offerings and tithe is part of what he instructs us to do. Because it actually is a measurement of where your walk, where your walk is. If you're clutching on to everything, what that's saying is you're scared and you don't trust him. You don't believe God has the power to get you through whatever you're going through. And I know a lot of people in my own family that they won't tithe and they are going through a lot of stuff. He blesses those who tithe and give offerings. But the offering is actually for you. It's not for his cause, really. I mean, it helps his cause, but he doesn't really need it. He can do it without you. But he's asking you to participate and he's asking you to give because it helps you. Fasting. Fasting effectively demonstrates the reality that life does not consist of the things you possess and deepens your awareness of spiritual, mental, and emotional needs. Now, I've done a whole sermon over fasting. I quit. You see, I gained the weight back. I've started back. But fasting has a lot of spiritual benefits to it. And if you read the Bible, you read all like all the time where they're his disciples and his apostles and his um, 
his um, his people, they fasted. So we really should look more into to the fasting aspect of our spirituality because there's a lot of power in it, and it's, it's actually very good for your soul. And then the last one here is serving. Ask the Lord to give you attentiveness to, to his voice as he brings needs to your attention and directs you to meet him, meet them in his strength, with his love and for his glory. As you serve in his name, you will know the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. See Nehemiah 8.10. If you have left your first love for the Lord, remember, repent and return to the first works of your faith. May God rekindle your love for him. If you notice... The people who serve the most in the church are on the most impassioned uh, and on fire for the Lord. And if you have members who don't serve as much, it's not the case. Love is what you do. Love is serving is a, is a form of love. Serving is a form of love. And serving helps you to, to keep that first love going and keep it burning. Serving and going out and doing evangelism, that's doing Serving is so important. The best way to get your youth involved is to get them to serve. That's why I try to get all my kids to, to, to come up here. And I don't have to try very hard. I was very surprised by that. They get up and they serve, and they're not afraid. That, that is only going to carry them through life. Because when you build that habit of serving, it, it's the foundation for your faith. Because you can't hope people make it to heaven. You've got to go out and do you got to go out and teach and share. And what you're doing is serving. You're, you're, you're sharing what you have gotten in, in, in your faith and coming to church. And you're sharing it with others. And if we're not out doing, you're losing your first love. That's why you're come, becoming complacent. And that's why, uh, you, I mean, that's, that's what's happening. The more fire you are, are for the Lord, the more you're going to get out and do and the less you do go out and do is a sign of you are on fire the way you were. So, in that message, in that letter, he was talking about the first love. And he said they had lost their first love. And, you, and the church actually began to go, be in turmoil. So he told them to return to their first love because he knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. And that's what the next sermon is going to be about with the church of Smyrna. It was the persecution that was about to, to ensue. So... I'm going to end there. We've already gone long enough. Um, bow your heads. Go have a word of prayer. Lord, there's so much work left to do, Lord, especially here in America where everybody's happy and complacent, where everybody um, doesn't feel the need um, to depend on you. I feel like people in other countries, they have a better chance because they understand the need and the struggles of life, Lord. And we here in America, we need to wake up and understand that we are in more need of you, Lord. As I do this series, Lord, I will ask that you give me the, your words that people may understand what these letters were all about and the time period and the church, the conditions of the church. And I ask that you help everyone here to understand the spiritual messages that you were trying to give us at the very beginning of Revelation. I ask that you um, bless everyone here. Um, and thank you so much for everything that you do for us. In Jesus name. Amen.